One of the things that we fear most in life is missing out on something. The uh, recent gas shortage out east, have you paid attention to that at all? With the pipeline that shut down? What happened? What was the, the immediate reaction that people had? It's gone by all, yeah, fear. The fear of a gas shortage. The fear I won't have enough gas. They said in the reporting that actually there was enough gas available during that shutdown that would have supplied all the normal needs of the East Coast for a given week. They also said, though, that during all of this hoarding, that gas demand went up fourfold during that time. How many remember the great toilet paper shortage of Great Bend? <laughs> what was wrong with us? Some of you are sitting there feeling guilty because you've got a basement full of toilet paper still just <laughs> sitting there. Yeah. It's that fear, you know, the fear we're going to miss out on something for a matter of days, a matter of weeks, months, years, or what about an eternity? This is the thing that gets me. The same people who are just paranoid that they would miss out on getting enough toilet paper, that they could run out of toilet paper, are the same people who give no thought whatsoever to their, to their eternal soul. The idea that they might miss out on, on salvation itself just seems to completely go past them. And you put toilet paper on one side of a scale and, and your eternal destiny on the other. And you go, those shouldn't be on the same scale at all, right? We're going to finish chapter 3 in Acts today. I left off midway through the sermon that Peter was preaching after he had healed the lame man in Jesus' name. You remember this? And it was a weird place to have to break, but there just was, it's just a very dense pa uh, package as, as, uh, as sermon texts go. So I just had to break it off uh, where I did and then, and then pick back up uh, this week. But where we're at right here in the, in the whole story of, of the book of Acts is we are still at ground zero. Right after Pentecost, we're still in Jerusalem. The gospel has not gone from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost. It is still right there. It is a very, very Jewish thing. But as you read this, and if you know the story, you, of course, are anticipating, but what's going to happen is this is going to move past Jerusalem pretty quickly. There is a moment here. There is an opportune time, and you see this, as, and you, this will kind of come out as we go along, but there's clearly a time signature of sorts here. There is a, a time that is growing short for the people that are in Jerusalem, the Jewish people, to respond and to turn and repent and to believe the gospel. So the big idea today is now is the opportune time to repent. It's very much spoken to the Jewish people, very much in a Jewish context here. There's some things which don't repeat uh, we've talked about that with the book of Acts. There are some things that are very unique for the book of Acts and don't really necessarily apply directly to us. There's all kinds of application that we can apply to. So let's look at this. It's, it's the opportune time to repent, first of all, because of the great benefits. Because of the great benefits. What, when you hear the word repent, what is the sort of color of that word to you? Is it a hot word, a cool word? Is it, I mean, how does it land with you? A happy word when you hear the word repent? I think for a lot of people, it's kind of an edgy word. It's, it's, it's full of just kind of negative freight in their, in their mind. It, there's judgment, and, you know, and, and they hear the word repent, and they think of religious extremists or what. But, you know, actually, 
the word repent is a beautiful word. It is just, I mean, spiritually speaking, isn't it one of the best words of all? Because repentance brings with it so many good things. It's good in and of itself, but then all of the benefits from it are just amazing. Well, let's look at these. The first of these is forgiveness. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. When you repent and you believe the gospel, because repentance, remember in the New Testament, we speak, the word repentance is kind of a word that means more than just repent. It's laden with the whole notion of repentance and turning toward Christ, turning toward the Lord through the gospel. So um, the first thing is, is this idea of forgiveness. True repentance in faith leads to your sins being wiped away. And I love the word here. I did a little study on this. Um, the word that gets translated blotted, uh, blotted out, or as I've said, wiped away, uh, is a word that was used for clearing off a piece of papyrus. Papyrus, you almost hear the word paper in that. It was the early paper. It was what a lot of the manuscripts of the New Testament were written on. It was precious. Paper then is almost on the opposite extreme of paper. Paper now, look at all the stuff that you get in the mail and you're like, why are you sending me all this paper? And, uh, and you dump it into the, or maybe you recycle. It goes in the trash can. Anyway, we have no sense of the value, but then papyrus was so expensive that they would literally, if, if they didn't have anything on it that was terribly important, they would wipe it clean. You say, well, how would you do that? Well, the ink of that time had no acid in it. It had no acid, and so when they wrote on papyrus, it was like the original dry erase board. They, they could take a damp cloth, and they could go over, and they could clean the ink away. And what this is saying is, is that when we repent and turn to Christ, that our sins are wiped away in that sort of same idea, that, that, that the wrongs that we have done, the accusations written in ink that stood against us have been cleansed, have been wiped, have been utterly wiped away through the blood of Christ. There is no record against us. There is no judgment left written against us. It is gone for those who have turned to Christ. Let me give you a, a kind of an illustration of how that ought to feel. Because I think as Christians, we start to lose that a little bit, maybe lose a sense of how good that really is. Imagine that you'd made, well, people would classify this as a big mistake. Let's just say sin, big sin. You went out on a Friday night, and you got completely soused, really drunk, okay? You with me? Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but some of you in your earlier days may know what this means. And you just got so drunk out of your mind that you lost track of where you were, what you were doing. You woke up Saturday morning. You had a hangover. You managed to get yourself out of bed. You walk in. You look in the mirror. And staring you back in the mirror is an image of a, of a man or woman in some people's case, completely covered in a face and neck tattoo. What have I done? And it gets worse because it says Heil Hitler and you have a swastika on each cheek. What did I do? I'm, not, I'm never gonna be able to go out in public again. And panicked, you know, illogically, you go, you grab a washcloth, you get it wet and you start wiping and lo and behold, it was some horrible prank that your buddy played on you and, and, it's, and, it, and it comes off. You just think of the relief of that, right? 
That's, what, that's the kind of thing that's being spoken of here. When we repent and turn to Christ, it's as if those sins had not happened. They are wiped clean. They are forgiven. Second benefit here. Under, under this, under the benefits, is um, a time of refreshing. It says that time, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. A time of refreshing. Well, what does that mean? Now, if you go through your sort of mental concordance and you say, well, where in the Old Testament does it talk about time of refreshing? You will, you will realize that there is no place in the Old Testament where that phrase in that exact way is used. In fact, the noun only occurs in in one place in the Old Testament. Do you remember the plague of the frogs? Of all the the plagues, do do frogs seem like the worst of the plagues? Not probably the worst, right? Frogs are kind of cute. Toads are kind of ugly, but frogs, you can handle a frog. But frogs were everywhere. Everywhere you went to take a bath, you filled up the tub, you go in, there's frogs in your tub. Just, just full of it. You go to get some cereal out of the cabinet, you open the cabinet, frogs are falling out on you. You open the cereal box, frogs are in the cereal box. And it says that eventually God, you know, when Pharaoh temporarily repented, God re- gave them relief, and that's the word here. The verb of it is also used in the Old Testament. It was used to talk about the rest that you were to give slaves on the Sabbath. So a slave that worked hard would have a time of refreshing, if you will, on the Sabbath. When David played the harp for Saul, remember Saul was being tormented by an evil spirit and David would play the harp for him. When he would do that, there was a sort of refreshing, a relief that came to Saul. So what is this time of refreshing? I think if you plug it into the, to the scripture and try to understand it, sin always brings a burden to our soul. Sin bows us down like the burden that a slave carries. Sin torments our souls like an evil spirit. And in the context of, of Peter's message here, as he's speaking to the Jewish people, he's probably thinking of a national level of repentance and then a, sort of this wide-sweeping national experience of a time of refreshing. I don't think he's thinking just specifically of individuals. I think he thinks at this point that he has the hope that preaching the gospel, that all the Jewish people in Jerusalem will just in mass turn and experience a kind of time of revival and refreshing. Did that happen? No, no. I mean, many thousands came to faith, but many, many other thousands did not. But everyone who comes to Christ Everyone who comes to Christ experiences a refreshing like we're talking about. The burdens fall away. Jesus said, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden like a slave, right? Being carried around a burden and he says, I will give you rest. You could almost insert that word refreshing there, couldn't you? It reminds me of that, of that old hymn where we sing, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. I was bound, I was burdened. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Quickening means to give life, doesn't mean get faster. A quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Everyone who comes to Christ, everyone who repents and believes in him, experiences that. Some Christians, however, struggle to really own that. 
And, and, and I run into that. I, I'll talk to people, and, and, some, and I, it's hard for me to completely comprehend. I'm blessed that God, when he got a hold of me with the gospel, gave me assurance fairly soon afterward, and I haven't lived in that place. But some people go through a long, long period of time where they think, not for me, not for me. Look at the benefits that are spelled out here and accept that. Believe that. If you have repented and trusted Christ, your sins have been wiped away as if those had never occurred. God has brought refreshing. And the third benefit is that Christ will return. Christ will return. Peter puts it this way in verse 20, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Think about that. Think about why that was such a great promise. First of all, it's counterintuitive if you think about the Jewish people themselves, they had been waiting for Messiah, and what has Peter been telling them pretty much in the Pentecost sermon and in this sermon? He's been telling them, look, yeah, you waited, you expected a Messiah, he came, and you missed him. And you didn't just miss him. You rejected him, and you denied him, and then you turned him over to evil men who nailed him on a cross. You might as well have nailed him there yourself. It is, it is on you. You had him put to death. Think about how heavy that would be. And then the promise is, so, he's, so if you repent, he'll come again. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Let me give you a, a, an illustration that's going to be hard to hear. It's one of these, uh, I almost didn't use it because I thought, man, that's pretty heavy. But I think it fits, and, and you'll see why in a moment. But uh, if a woman got an abortion, and, uh, well, first of all, she would probably justify it for a whole variety of reasons, and there'd be different ways she would go at justifying it. Oh, it's not really a life. I didn't, I didn't ask for this. I can't keep it. I can't bear it. Whatever it might be, my body, my choice, those kinds of things, right, would, how she would justify it. But if that same woman at some point comes to faith in Christ, there's going to be that moment where she recognizes the sheer evil of the act that she has done. And she's going to recognize at that point where God softens her heart and she says yes to Christ and the Holy Spirit just overwhelms her in all of this, she's going to be, she's going to grieve She's going to grieve over that life that she lost. How hard would it be to even, first of all, believe the message of forgiveness, but then having believed it, how hard it would be to go from there with, with that, that idea of what, what she had done. Think now of the Jewish people. The scripture says when Christ returns that they will look upon him whom they pierced and they will mourn. Here's the prophecy. Read it here with me. Zechariah, not out loud, but you know, follow along. Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out, this sounds very much like the time that we're in here in Acts, in Acts chapter three. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So there's gonna be repentance, right? They're gonna be, they're gonna be moved to call out for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Back to the uh, abortion analogy. A, a woman who truly, after having an abortion, comes to Christ, repents, and believes. That same woman 
who will certainly have mourning and grief over her past sin, will suddenly have a hope she didn't have before. You know where I'm going with this? And that's the hope that the child she aborted will be with her in eternity. And in the same way, the people of God, the Jewish people, had turned Christ over to death. But Peter is saying, though you did that, and, and what is worse than giving up an innocent man, your Savior, your Messiah, how much worse can you do than, than to have somebody like that put to death? But Peter's like, you know what? It's not too late. It is, it is not too late if you repent. Through repentance, the horrifying thought of having killed your Savior is transformed and swallowed up into the hope of him coming again. You and I have that hope that if we have repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, that we will see him. We long for that day when faith will be sight and, and, and there will be that trumpet of God and, and the dead in Christ shall rise and we will be caught up to meet Christ in the air. Our sins laid upon him, brought him to death, but washed and refreshed, we will glory in the day when he returns. When I was telling you the uh, analogy of the abortion, did you struggle with that? Did you sit there and think, well, that's convenient, isn't it? You kill the life, and then God's just going to wipe the slate clean, and then you have the hope of seeing the child again. That seems a little too convenient. It's grace. It's the power of grace. We're responsible for the death of God's son. And yet through repentance, we experience not only the forgiveness of our sins, the wiping away of our sin and that refreshing, but we now experience the hope of him coming again. And so could those Jewish people that were, that were listening to this. Let's move forward in the text here. The, the, this next verse really puts a time frame to it. You know, I was talking about how there's kind of a, a time that's moving. You get that sense here in the text. It says, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So Peter is saying here to them, the clock has started. The clock has started. Christ ascended into heaven. God is going to send him again, just as we saw. In the future, Christ will return. The messianic kingdom will be set up. The very hope of Israel that time of restoration will come about. All this time, think about it. You go all the way back to the, the fall of both houses of Israel. You know, you had the northern kingdom carried off into Assyria. You had the southern kingdom of Judah carried off into Babylon. From the time even before that, when the two kingdoms divided, Israel had been hoping for that time of Messiah, that time of restoration. That's great news. This was Israel's hope. The prophets foretold that the time, that the time of Messiah was, was coming, and this is the next prophetic event, according to Peter, that they're waiting on, is his return and that restoration. But here's the thing. You need to repent because the countdown has begun. The countdown has begun. The, 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 the prophetic clock is ticking away. He will not delay forever. Peter's saying, look, it, it's moving. It's going. Christ has ascended. Christ is coming again. We're somewhere between those two points. He didn't know at the point he's preaching this to them that that, that time span from the ascension to his return, he didn't know it would be 2,000 or 3,000 or however many years. It was. For all he knew, it was 40 years and, and then Christ would return. And he's telling them, look, you're on that timeline. 
Don't waste time. Instead of dread for the day of the Lord, look forward to it. Repent so that you can look forward to it. Next, because God promised you. Because God promised you. We've already seen all kinds of prophecy concerning his coming, but look at the next verse. It says, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Who's the me in there? A a prophet like me. Who's speaking in Deuteronomy? Who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses, there you go, and, and he wrote Deuteronomy, so this is Moses speaking, and he's saying, look, I'm, past. remember, he died on the other side of the Jordan. Moses messed up a little bit, and God says, no, you're not gonna go into the promised land. You'll see it from afar, but you're not gonna take the people into the promised land. So, so he says, look, God's gonna raise up another one that's gonna be like me, and you're gonna have to listen to him. Now, in the first instance, sort of the near fulfillment of that was gonna be Joshua, who, by the way, has the same name as Jesus, interestingly enough. But yeah, um, yeah. so, so you're, gonna have to, you're gonna have to trust that guy and do what he says. But there's also that further sense. And the Jewish people had this belief that Messiah was not only going to be the descendant of David. So it doesn't, it's not like the idea of that coming one started with David and beyond. You go all the way back, you can go all the way back to the first few chapters of Genesis, but you go back to the time of Moses and Peter's pointing out here, there was, there was this one that was predicted. You guys love Moses, and they did. I, Moses was like psh, above all others, head and shoulders above all other Old Testament, per, even above David in their mind, and, and Peter's causing them to recollect that, hey, there was this other one that was coming, and you need to listen to him. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Peter's saying you waited He sent the Messiah, you missed him, you didn't recognize him, and yet still, even now, even now, if you repent, then it's as if you didn't miss him at all. You still still have that opportunity for that one that would come and, and that we were to listen to. It's like Tim Tebow. Yes, I'm I'm venturing out into a sports analogy here, so. Bear with me, I'm in uncharted territory when I use sports illustrations, but Tim Tebow, right? He had the promise at one point of being a real player in the NFL and things looked good for a little while and then he was gone. It's like, what happened? He's gone, they don't want him anymore. And that looked like it was the end of the story. How many are are tracking with me here and you've followed the news? All at once the the, the Jaguars pick him up and... and, uh, Um, tight end, he's not quarterback or anything like that, he's gonna have to work really hard. But if you're Tim Tebow, having missed the the original promise, as it were, are you gonna take a a chance when it comes along again? Duh, right? absolutely, Absolutely you are. I know Christians who fear that they've lost their chance. For whatever reason, they confessed Christ when they were young, but something happened, they became dull, in, in their spiritual lives, they fell away from church attendance, they, they went through a time of sin and disobedience, and now they want to come back, and they think, maybe there are no second chances, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I messed it up too much, and there's no coming back. Israel killed their Savior. They killed their Savior. They missed him. They put him to death. They buried him. But on the third day, he rose again, and Peter is saying, there is still 
the promise. You still have the opportunity. Receive it. Repent. Believe it. Be, be Tim Tebow. Take that second chance. You missed it the first time? Take the second one. Having said that, there is a warning here. Repent because God warned you. It says, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You see, the flip side of this promise, which amounts to a second chance at a promise, the flip side of that is a penalty. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We would love it if it was all carrot and no stick, wouldn't we? We think we do. We think, we think well, we're grown-up people nowadays. We don't need the fear of penalty. We don't need the threat of, of wrath. You just, just tell us the good stuff, Pastor. Yeah? Because we're, we're, uh, we're evolved. It isn't that way at all, is it? We still need to, it's a good cop. You can't have a good cop, bad cop, cop scenario if you only have the good cop. There, there, is, there is a penalty, and to do justice to the holiness and wrath of God, we have to proclaim both. There is a promise, but there is a warning. What happened when they ignored Moses? Because remember, he says, one's coming after me, like me. Listen to him. If you don't, there's penalty with that. What happened to those that ignored Moses? You remember a guy named Korah? Wouldn't it be horrible if, if you were remembered in Scripture, but it was because your name was Korah? Because that guy rebelled against Moses, and, and Moses finally, you know, under God's direction, he's like, okay, I'm gonna just stand over here, and uh, Korah, you stand over there. Hey, anybody that's with Korah, go over there and stand next to the guy. And some people were dumb enough to do that, and what happened? Earthquake, ground opens up, <laughs> took them living down. In, into the bowels of the earth. Such as turn from the one greater than Moses will in similar fashion be destroyed. And when I say destroyed, when the text talks about being destroyed here, it's not talking about just physically being destroyed. The word that, that Peter uses here, it really has more to do with being cut off from the covenant people of God. If you go to the Old Testament and look for that word, time and time again, it's in a setting where it talks about people who have been utterly spiritually cut off from the people of God. To be destroyed, to, to ignore Christ, is to be destroyed forever apart from God's covenant people. Now is the time to repent. Why, if we worry about paper shortages and toilet paper and get... Why would we not heed this and listen? The destruction of your soul is a horrible, horrible thing to have no concern for. Don't harden your heart. And repent because you are privileged. Repent because you are privileged. Peter says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. Peter's just, he's just going and rehearsing the same kind of thing that Paul rehearses in the book of Romans. You remember in the book of Romans where, where Paul's like, well, is there a benefit from be, being a Jew? 
And he's like, yes, in every way, you know, theirs belongs the covenant and, 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 and the temple and all and the priesthood and all of these things and the promises, the patriarchs, Abraham, the promise to Abraham that through them all the nations of the earth we will be blessed. Uh, they, they were privileged and, and Peter is trying to get them to see that, to see that they, they, are, they are so blessed and then Christ is the first to, to come to them or they the first to see Christ. They should repent of their sins so they, that they would not fail that great privilege. That's hard for us to understand as Gentiles. If you're Gen, are most of you Gentiles, just guessing. I wished when they did, did my genetic stuff that there'd be like a big Jewish thing pop up in there somewhere. Nope, just full-scale pagan, absolutely. And we, we read this and it's a little hard for us to relate because we don't come from that kind of privilege. Um, I guess you could relate it to um, Harry and Meghan. Do you follow that stuff at all? This is equal time, man. I gave a sports illustration, so. Um, the Royals, the Royals, Harry and Meghan. I don't really follow it that much, but I see a lot of it. It seems like it just dominates the news. Like every day there's something about Harry and Meghan, and if you follow it at all, you realize that they are just this close to being utterly and completely disowned. Like I, I read an article this week that, that, the, that the royal family is really on the verge of 100% just kicking them out completely, 100%, no coming back from it. And, and you're like, boo-hoo, right? <laughs> because we're not royal, we don't understand it, but can you imagine you're, you're of the house of Windsor and you're gonna just go and completely trash that where they don't even, they don't even you know, own you any longer. They don't, even, they don't even consider you one of their own. That'd be a horrible, horrible thing. Peter is calling his fellow Jews to repent and he's pointing them to this unfathomable privilege of their birth. They're sons of the prophet in covenant with God through Abraham. They're the first to have the gospel preached to them. That's where we're at in chapter 3. They are on the receiving end of the gospel. They're the very first to hear it, to the, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, as Paul would say. But they needed to respond. You say, well, that's, that's them, but I'm not Jewish. We don't have that particular privilege, but what does it mean just to be an American? And just, just apply that. In the sovereignty of God, you were born in America. You're probably the descendant of Christian people who came to this country to flee religious persecution so that they might worship God in that freedom. If you look back on, you know, in your family tree, I bet you'd go back, you'd find pastors, you'd find missionaries, you'd find people that devoutly worship God. You probably received a Gideon Bible when you were in fifth grade. Billy Graham was on the TV when you were younger and he was, he was declared. How many ways and in how many places has God preached the gospel to you? And you've had that opportunity preached to you. Repent, repent, turn to God, believe the gospel. It is your privilege to hear it. You must respond. And then finally, repent because God is turning you away from wickedness. God is the one who is at work in the gospel through the preaching of the cross, through the work of the Holy Spirit, turning us from sin, turning us from wickedness. It says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This goes back to what I was saying earlier. Repentance is a beautiful word. 
In fact, I would challenge you, if, if, if you have a gut check on the word repentant and you don't like the word repent, there may be a problem. It's a beautiful word. When God, it, it's spoken of as a gift of God. You know, when the, when the Gentiles believe and the Jewish church hears it and they're like, so God has granted repentance even to the Gentiles. It, it, it is a good thing, the declaration of the gospel. Though it comes with warning, it comes with an incredible promise that God not only will wipe that slate clean like that dry erase papyrus thing that we're talking about, you know, and not only will he bring us refreshing, but that he will turn us away from wickedness, the wickedness that, that wears on our heart and soul. When a person responds and believes, they receive not only eternal life, but that great, that great value of, of having their heart turned toward righteousness and away from evil. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I watched a weird movie the other day. I'll just admit it. I'll confess that. It was a weird movie. It's called um, Welcome to Marwin. Did anybody see that? It doesn't surprise me. Like, I'd forgotten they'd made the movie, and I'd kind of stumbled onto a mention of it, and I thought, I'm going to go back. It's Steve Carell. Halfway decent movie. It's not, it's not a terrible movie anyway. It's based on a true story about a guy named Mark Hogenkamp. Mark Hogenkamp was an amateur artist. Apparently, he was a budding artist. He was quite good at what he did, but he was also just an abject alcoholic. Like, bad. Like, yeah, he'd lost his marriage and probably forgotten he had been married in his alcoholic stupor. And then one day he's in a bar and he shoots his mouth off about some stuff to some guys and um, he leaves the bar that evening and five guys come and just beat him within an inch of his life. They leave him bleeding and, and dying in effect. He spent nine days in a coma. And, uh, and when he came out of the coma, he couldn't remember who he was couldn't remember his marriage that had failed. He, he couldn't draw anymore. He had no skills in, in that any longer. He also was no longer an alcoholic. How weird is that? Beaten within an inch of his life, the one bright thing in the whole thing was that he no longer had a craving for alcohol. You say, that's pretty extreme. I don't know whether I'd want to have myself beaten to death in order to get over a serious addiction. But hey, it worked. Coming to Christ is like being beaten. No, it's not at all. You just think that. The unbeliever thinks that. They're like, I don't want to give my life to Jesus. I don't want to be beaten within an inch of my life and have my whole life taken away from me and for, have to forget everything I, you know, that I've ever experienced and every joy I've ever known. That's not what it is. Coming to Christ is joy, it, it is beautiful, it is, it is grace, and with it there is God's work turning us away from evil. That's part of the great benefit of repentance. So come to Christ. There's so, so many reasons and there is so much at stake. Think about this. If you're not a believer, what do you have in your life that is just so good that you wouldn't want eternal life, that you wouldn't want to have your sins blotted away, that you wouldn't want that time of refreshing. What could possibly, what, a great supply of toilet paper? Does that really, enough gas for your gas tank for a week? What is it that you would cling to? There is nothing, nothing compared to the goodness and grace of knowing Christ Jesus. And I just call you today, Repent.
repent that that time of refreshing for you might come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for a good word of repentance that that you declare through the gospel to turn from wickedness, to turn from idolatry, to turn from sin, and to turn and, and see Christ as Savior and to put our trust in him. That is such a joy, Lord. And, and I would pray that you would teach a heart today, maybe many hearts, to think of that in, an, in a whole different way. A whole different, Lord, you're not trying to beat us within an inch of our life. You're trying to give us life. You're, you're not making our life miserable. You're turning us from wickedness and addiction and all, all kinds of things, Lord, that are burdens too heavy for us to bear. I pray that even today, Lord, you might reach such a one and draw him or her to yourself. And we will give you all the praise and all the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen.